Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by um, a colleague and friend, Mort Schoolman, who's going to talk to us about a democratic enlightenment. The Reconciliation Image, Aesthetic Education, Possible Politics. This book was published in 2020 by Duke University Press, and it is a complex and very fascinating dive into thinking about democratic politics and particularly some of the roles that art and aesthetic plays in our thinking. But I'm going to let Mort talk to us about that as well as this fascinating project. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mort, and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project. Lily, thank you so much. I'm uh, just really flattered to be invited today to talk about my about my book, um, and I've been I've been looking forward to it for 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 quite some time. So I think uh, I, I think you'll 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 hear my excitement uh, come through as I uh, as, as I. Um, um, discuss the democratic enlightenment with you. Well, you know, that question that you've just posed actually is one I can today give a much better answer to than if you had asked me when I was actually writing the democratic enlightenment. Because it was really only quite recently as I began to think about my next project that I realized there must be something very deeply personal driving my preoccupation about uh, with questions about the relation between identities and differences, and not only in the past and present work that I've done, but now in my work going into the future. So in addition to political and theoretical issues that sowed the seeds for a democratic enlightenment, on a personal level, I began to realize that my preoccupation with identities construction of difference as the other may originally be owed to my mother's struggle with schizophrenia, which stigmatized her difference from the norm as a form of otherness and constantly threatened her with various forms of discrimination, marginalization, exclusion, 
and ultimately threatened her existence itself. Now, with regard to political issues explaining my preoccupation with identity and difference, toward the end of the last century, I'm sure you recall, there was an intensification in discussions about race and ethnicity in the United States with respect to future demographic trends. In a half century or so, it was predicted by many whites would no longer constitute a majority over America's growing diverse racial, racial and ethnic populations. And this meant, too, that norms governing the identities of all populations, white and otherwise, would be increasingly challenged by the progress of the feminist civil rights and gay rights movements. So the political issue was not only how the white population would react to America's growing diversity of differences, but how diverse racial and ethnic groups and whites together would respond to challenges to the norms that govern their own identities. Now, put another way, would America's new diversity amplify constructions of difference as otherness, deepening social divisions and inflaming divisiveness? And certainly, violence toward difference during the past four years, xenophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, and homophobia has answered this question in the affirmative. At the same time as these personal and political issues formed the basis for my work, a theoretical issue I was deeply concerned about was whether the rule of law, about which we hear a lot these days, could ameliorate these divisions and their, <clears throat> uh, and their um, uh, uh, human uh, implications. It didn't seem to me that the law could. And here's why. Violence against difference thrives in the private sphere, in families, in schools, in workplaces, in neighborhoods. What I call beneath the threshold of the rule of law and such um, violence towards difference, which is bred in these private contexts, is always readily vulnerable to political exploitation and mobilization by leaders such as the one that um, has recently left uh, the office of the presidency. So with such personal, political, and theoretical issues in mind, it was my belief, informed by my work in politics and aesthetics, that it could only be through an enlightenment of individuals in their private lives an enlightenment whose lessons would be taught through art, that identities, violent relations to difference could undergo a transformation. Such an enlightenment relying on what I call the aesthetic education of individuals as they live their lives in their private worlds could change identity's relation to difference into an aesthetic relation. Identity would relate to difference just as modern artworks do. And I realize this is a strong claim, which I hope to make uh, clear on shortly. Now, finally, while the future of modern democratic relations between identity and difference inspired my new book, A Democratic Enlightenment, my engagements with the contributions of the European Enlightenment to the emergence of modern democracy played an important supporting role. Because what became important to me was that although modern democratic republics 
were deeply indebted for their constitutional principles to the European Enlightenment, and the peoples of these democracies were the beneficiaries of these principles, the people themselves had never been in any direct sense students of an enlightenment. So it was then that I settled on the concept of a democratic enlightenment. Moreover, one that would rely on aesthetic education, on art, to teach democratic lessons to people as they lived their private lives, the democratic lesson being how to overcome their practices of constructing difference of otherness, how to overcome their tendencies, which are bred within the private sphere, uh, to commit various acts of violence towards difference, discrimination, exclusion, marginalization, and, of course, as we learned from uh, the fascist, fascist experience in Germany in the 30s, at the extreme extermination. But this project now presented me with two, two major challenges. And, and so you have set me up as an interviewer with a wonderful entree point um, as we think about this idea of democratic enlightenment and the role of, uh, as you know, a kind of aesthetic education in the private sphere. Can you talk to us a bit about those two major challenges that you faced as you were sort of sketching out you're thinking in this direction. Well, I, I would be, I, I, I would love to. I mean, this, this now gives me the opportunity to begin to get into the heart of the book itself. So the first challenge was what lesson should aesthetic education teach a democratic people? And then the second one was how would, uh, how would that lesson, whatever that lesson turned out to be, uh, be taught um, what art, in other words, would serve as the aesthetic media, let me call it, of a democratic enlightenment. So for good reasons, I'd already begun to imagine film, cinema, as the answer to my second question. Film, most Hollywood films, after all, are very popular. So there was a very, um, I think, accurate sense in which I could describe such Hollywood films as being democratic. Um, and film's narrative form made it made uh, film an intellectually accessible media to people. Though eventually, and I didn't know this when I first started the project, I would subordinate the storylines of film narratives to the importance of the democratic lessons taught specifically by film images. And I will I'll explain that a bit better later. So my feeling then was that um, film is democratic twice over. It's on the one hand accessible, and on the other hand, it's popular. But then something sort of extraordinary happened to me. Uh, while I was considering these two questions, first, what lesson should a democratic enlightenment teach? And second, how should it teach that lesson? I reread an essay that I'd read many times before, Walt Whitman's essay, Democratic Vistas, which answered my first question by becoming one of the most, and here I'm going to sound dramatic, but I'm being utterly sincere, 
by becoming one of my most thrilling experiences I've had as a theorist. Although Democratic Vistas was published in 1871, it seemed to me that it was Whitman's own personal reflections on his Leaves of Grass, his collection of poems, which was published in 1855. The purpose of the essay being to explain to its readers past, present, and those going uh, going forward into the future, what he set out to accomplish with his poetry. And at what point, at one point, Whitman writes, and I should have picked this up in earlier readings, but I suppose I had read uh, the essay on earlier occasions, looking for different things or for different for different purposes. Whitman writes, this is a slight abbreviation, only from the mass comes the other, comes the chance of individualism. The two are contradictory, but our task is to reconcile them, unquote. So reconciliation thus stood out to me as Whitman's democratic ideal, by which I understood from his essay, the reconciliation of identity, on the one hand, identity of the nation, of its dominant culture, of its dominant group or groups, of its dominant communities uh, and individuals with all those who are different. So Whitman here is talking, in my view, about the reconciliation of identity and difference, which is a very, a very um, important question, all important question, of course, for contemporary political theory. Yet here is why, here's further why Whitman's essay is so thrilling to read. To begin with, Whitman is proposing a democratic ideal of reconciliation during the period in America of Reconstruction, when America has deeper racial divisions than even before the Civil War. So if Whitman could imagine reconciliation under those conditions, can we now imagine reconciliation as the way to heal our own divisions between identities and differences? Clearly, this question takes on an even greater urgency now during the post-Trump era. And in Democratic Vistas, Whitman not only answers my question, what a democratic enlightenment should teach, the ideal of reconciliation, but it provides an answer to how it could be taught through a, through a specific democratic medium or media. Reconciliation, according to Whitman, would be taught by poets who through their poetry could develop an enlightened culture able to heal America's divisions. And he goes on about this in Democratic Vistas in just magnificently poetic and eloquent ways. Now, finally, there was another reason why this was such a thrilling a discovery for me. For many years, I had been reading another theorist of reconciliation, Theodore Adorno, who, like Whitman, had the concept of reconciliation at the very heart of his work although that's a controversial claim, which perhaps I can <clears throat> better defend later. Like Whitman, Adorno theorized reconciliation as the reconciliation of identity and difference, as overcoming political and social practices of constructing differences as the other. And like Whitman, Adorno imagined another enlightenment, which with Horkheimer in their book, dialectic of enlightenment, they called a positive enlightenment, an enlightenment able to overcome the shortcomings 
of the Enlightenment that had shaped the modern world. So with Whitman as well as Adorno, then, I had the answer to my first puzzle, namely, through aesthetic education, what was a democratic enlightenment to teach? It was to teach the ideal of reconciliation. But problematically, both Whitman and Adorno were also at odds with each other, as well as being at odds with me, on my own answer to my second question. That is, through what form of art was reconciliation to be taught? For in Whitman's case, as I said, Poetry was to do the work of cultural enlightenment, which is problematic in our time because poetry is not as ubiquitous, not as popular, or not as intellectually accessible as is film. And in Adorno's case, it was modern art, certainly the visual arts, however excluding film, of which he was very critical, and certain forms of music which could teach reconciliation. So both Whitman's and Adorno's ideal of reconciliation were modeled by art forms that are too complicated, too esoteric to nurture a democratic enlightenment. Consequently, I had to do something I wasn't at first prepared to do, but realized I really had to do it if this project was going to go further. I had to revise my second question to ask it differently. And I did it something like this. I said, quite apart from Whitman's attachment to poetry and quite apart from Adorno's attachment to modern art, as the aesthetic media of enlightenment, could Whitman and Adorno nevertheless help me to theorize how a democratic aesthetic media, such as film, could play the educational role of teaching reconciliation, the role of teaching a democratic society how to overcome its practices of constructing difference as otherness. And frankly, it's at this point in which the book now begins to get into intensely controversial territory. And, and, and you keep setting me up this way <laughs> with, with some really good um, sort of jumping off points. Um, and I want to get into those controversies but I wanted to ask you first, just just a little bit of a sidebar, because we've seen the, to some degree, the viral response to Amanda Gorman um, at the um, at the inauguration, uh, and and again, I think part of what we saw was not only her words, but the way that she presented them herself. Um, so it was both visual and language. And can you just comment for a moment on how somebody like Gorman, um, who is a poet, uh, but is also sort of, you know, somebody who is now being presented in images of who she is um, as, as, you know, a physical embodiment of America in a certain sense. How does that fit into some of what you're talking about with regard to Whitman's commitment to poetry? Yeah, that's a terrific, that's a terrific question. And uh, I thought that she was just dazzling uh, in her presentation. And I was very alert to the visual dimensions of her presentation uh, during the inauguration. Um, I mean, 
it's extremely interesting to me, this question too, because um, her uh, construction, if you will, or her conception of America in her poem, as she explained it, was that America was uh, an unfinished project. And when I heard that, I was floored because it was as though she had taken a line out of Whitman's uh, essay, Democratic Vistas. Because in Democratic Vistas, towards the end, he describes uh, America precisely as such an unfinished project, um, as one that is uh, going forward. um, I can't remember now exactly how he um, poeticizes it, but the idea that it's passing endlessly through time, that it will assume um, a a great variety of of formations. And um, uh, this is... uh, and, and, and if Amanda had, her, had this in mind, uh, which I believe that she did, then she and Whitman are even uh, uh, more alike in their thinking about America than may have been uh, even conveyed uh, during the inauguration. But um, she struck me as saying that not only that America was an unfinished project, but it was going to remain an unfinished project. And this is precisely Whitman's argument. And why is that the case? Because for Whitman, the um, there were always new differences. Because Whitman is concerned always about identity, the reconciliation of identity and difference. His notion of reconciliation is several d- different dimensions, which I will talk about. But the important thing basically is that no matter how many instances or how successful America will be at reconciling, um, dominant identities, the identities of dominant groups, cultures, and communities, and so forth, with new differences, new immigrant populations, new racial and ethnic groups, and so forth, that new differences always will be entering um, into the democratic space that constitutes America. So there will always be new challenges to, uh, to achieve reconciliation and those new challenges really um, uh, mean that reconciliation is an un- unfinished project. And this, in fact, is not only, um, in other words, a, a, an idea of Whitman's and of Amanda's, but also of, of, of Adorno's. The idea of reconciliation, it seems to me, for all three, seems to be that on the one hand, the idea of reconciliation should be envisioned. We should have a, a real... Uh, there should be um, uh, actual uh, uh, incarnations, instantiations of it um, that we can see um, and that have a presence. Uh, um, but not only uh, are, are, can we envision such instances, but there must also be testimony to the absence of reconciliation. So this seems on the surface to be paradoxical that reconciliation can on the one hand be achieved, but yet on the other hand be something to achieve in the future, which is precisely, I think, what it means when when um, when uh, Amanda and also Walt Whitman and uh, Adorno um, uh, uh, argue that reconciliation is a democratic project um, that we can envision have instances of, examples of, 
Uh, we can point to real achievements, but yet there will always be new differences in the future uh, 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 for the project of reconciliation uh, 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 to meet, for the challenge of reconciliation to meet. And um, it's, it's what I call in my book those dual temporalities uh, that reconciliation is a time arrived, but also a time yet to come. Um, the, it can be a, an achievement today, tomorrow, every day, but it will be an achievement which will be which will go on indefinitely. And I think that um, perhaps some of the critiques of her um, of her argument in her poem was precisely because of the openness that she attributed to America, the fact that this project of reconciliation, she didn't use those terms, um, but this project of harmony um, would be one that would go on indefinitely because America was not only an unfinished project, but would remain indefinitely an unfinished project. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and and the line from hamilton uh that manuel miranda penned um that it is america's that great unfinished symphony um keeps rattling around in my brain as well as we are sort of talking about the dual temporalities of reconciliation that that the united states does keep sort of passing, as you say, sort of forward, and it is a very forward projecting place, um, but that it is also churning up um, the, the things that came before in an effort to reconcile um, and bring them together. So you set me up and I took you on a little sidebar, but I want to take you back to the controversy, um, as you know, with regard to the, the aspects of your book that have that 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 are in fact taking on Adorno and Whitman, but also possibly replacing their focus with one on on film. That, that, that's exactly right. And but if I if I might just before I do that, just add something to to what you've said here uh, when you were also quoting Miranda, there there is. Uh, and Adorno points to this, uh, I think, although it might be implicit in in uh, in in the words and the thoughts of of uh, Miranda and Amanda and, and Whitman, that if we insist that reconciliation can be a project that can reach um, uh, a, 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 a complete fulfillment, 
uh, that it can be completely and utterly realized, that that is an illusion that we have to be aware of, that America has to be aware of. It is precisely because there are always differences that are um, developing both within America and differences outside of America, for example, in immigrant populations that, that will be coming in in the future, um, because there are always new differences that are, that are proliferating and being born and created and developing and so forth, that if we make the mistake of thinking that America can be finished, then what we do basically is to be overly content, too self-satisfied with the idea that reconciliation has been a project that has reached consummation and that um, uh, it, and that it's no longer a project going on in the future. And it's at that point at which reconciliation falls apart, precisely because then those identities that are already, for example, included, um, uh, do become dominant and do then exclude those differences with which there would have to be a reconciliation at some subsequent point in the future. So we must be aware, in other words, of what Adorno called the illusion of reconciliation. We must be content with, on the one hand, instances of reconciliation, envisioning, envisioning reconciliation, but never, uh, never congratulating ourselves that reconciliation uh, has now been uh, completely and uh, uh, perfectly accomplished. Now, let me get back to the to, to the problem that, that you asked me to return to. The can Whitman and Adorno help me, despite the fact that Whitman is um, recommending poetry as the media of reconciliation. Adorno is recommending the artwork, the modern artwork, particularly painting uh, in his great work, Aesthetic Theory, uh, as the media of uh, the democratic media of reconciliation. Can they nevertheless help me to uh, think of ways in which uh, reconciliation can be a democratic achievement, that um, there can be a democratic media film to teach the lesson of reconciliation in a visual way. Now, that's the challenge. And my first, my first breakthrough here was my rereading of um, Walt Whitman's poem, Song of the Rolling Earth, which in my view has received too, too little attention. Um, and, uh, and, and see if I can explain why. Uh, what Whitman does in, uh, in his poem, The Song of the Rolling Earth, is something I think that only the most advanced modern artworks do. And I think it is a characteristic of modern art, and we really don't see it prior to the birth of modern art, prior, for the most part, to, to the 18th century. Um, Whitman uses poetic language in the Song of the Rolling Earth to call attention to the limits of poetic language. In other words, it's kind of a reflexive move where he's reflecting on his poem and he says, this is the purpose of poetic language, but we must also attend or be aware of the limits of poetic language. And those limits are in the first instance that poetic language is not able to know the essences of things and people. And um, he doesn't use exactly those words, but that seems to me to be his argument. 
And um, what happens when he uses, when he makes this argument that, um, that don't expect us as readers of poets um, to, uh, to use um, poetic language in a way that can um, uh, explain to us the essence of the world, the truth of the world, the reality of the world. That means that poetry is oriented to appearances. And that was just an extraordinary uh, claim that I believe that he was making. And in fact, once I realized that that's what he was saying, suddenly so many other things in his poetry that I had not been clear about um, suddenly uh, uh, came into focus for me. So, So the first move he makes then is to say, Poetry can't know essences, can't know reality, can't know truth. Um, uh, therefore, uh, poetry must focus on appearances. And um, poetry then is teaching us to focus on appearances, because what he's saying about poetic language also pertains to language in general. Not only can poetic language not know essences, but the language that we use to think with cannot know essences either. So we too must focus on appearances. The second implication of that is if poetry must um, uh, limit itself to appearances because it it cannot know essences, that means that having nothing in common, having no essences in common, appearances are all different. And so we are not only then looking at appearances, but we must recognize as that all appearances are utterly different because we do not know uh, of any commonalities, of any, uh, of any essential characteristics that such differences have in common. And then here's a final move that he makes, which I think is just remarkable. Um, if it's the case that we must view all appearances as differences because we do not know the essences of differences, then we cannot associate any particular difference at all with any essence to privilege that difference over other differences. So in other words, what what Whitman has done by calling attention to the limits of poetic language is to say, from poetry, we learn to, to, um, uh, to pay attention to appearances, to the differences between appearances, and that there is no appearance appearance that can be privileged by corresponding to any essence or truth that can then be used to exclude other differences. So in other words, what Whitman has done right away with this, with this drawing our attention to the limits of poetic language is to introduce us to the first dimension of his ideal of reconciliation, and that is the all-inclusiveness of differences. Now, um, there is there is more beyond this, and now this brings us to the um, uh, to the second dimension of Whitman's ideal of reconciliation, and that is that if the essences of differences, all of which is, are now included within a democratic society, um, are unknowable, then such differences have a certain kind of mysterious quality to them. They become curious to us. They become interesting. Um, They become a little bit remote, um, but we are attracted to them. And um, 
This is what I refer to as Whitman's way of making us receptive to differences whose essences are unknown. Therefore, there is a certain mystery, or as he says in other poems, a certainly a certain wonder or a curiosity um, uh, which draws us to them. Um, we are attracted to them. And then um, finally, we, we come to the third uh, dimension of Whitman's ideal of reconciliation. And uh, if it is the case that, um, that, uh, that we are attracted or receptive to, um, to, to differences whose essences um, uh, we have no knowledge of, um, Whitman, it seems to me, argues that differences at this point become vehicles of our own imitations of them. So here is the situation we have then. We have appearances which are all different. We have no difference that can be, that can be privileged over others. All differences seem to us to be attractive. We are receptive to them. And now Whitman writes in his poem, Song, Song of Myself, a different poem, in his verse 15, he, he lists about a uh, hundred different personas. He talks about pure contraltos and turkey shooters and the squaw wrapped in her yellow-hemmed cloth, the baptized child, three matrons walking arm in arm on the piazza, lunatics, prostitutes, presidents, young and old, husbands and wives, and so on. So he has this long, long list in verse 15. And then the last three lines in this verse are simply uh, just uh, amazing to me. And he writes, and here I'm going to, I've written it down. I'm going, so, so I don't, so I don't uh, 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 miss a word or make a mistake. He says, and these tend inward to me and I tend outward to them. And such as it is to be of these, more or less I am. And then he says, and of these one and all, I weave the song of myself. So here we have in this single verse 15, all of the three dimensions of Whitman's ideal of, of, of reconciliation. First, the dimension of, of uh, all-inclusiveness, because the Verse 15 is so long, clearly Whitman's aspiration is to eventually include everyone and everything within it. And then secondly, um, he's saying, uh, these tend inward to me, I tend outward to them. That suggests to me the motion of receptivity, of attraction to them. And then he says, I weave the song of myself from all these different differences, which I understand to mean I am imitating. Um, uh, these uh, differences in one way or another to become more or less like them. So in other words, this is what I call Whitman's idea of democratic becoming, that Whitman is imitating differences to become different in the image of differences, but not copies, uh, not, not replicas, but just more or less like a difference in a, in, in, in a little way, or perhaps uh, 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 in a lesser way, as he says, or perhaps larger than a lesser way, perhaps an idea, a disposition, uh, a cultural practice. There are all sorts of ways in which Whitman imagines imitating differences to become himself uh, uh, different. So that's, in other words, there he's reconciling his own identity 
as Walt Whitman, with the differences to which he is attracted and from which he weaves the song of himself. In other words, that he imitates. Now, all that I've done so far is to sort of try to convey how Whitman is explaining um, or trying to teach reconciliation through poetic language that he's already drawn uh, uh, our attention to its limits to. But here is now the extraordinary move that Whitman seems to me to have made. Because once Whitman turns um, uh, turns uh, differences into appearances, which cannot be privileged, and to which we are attracted, and which we uh, will imitate, what is the natural home, after all, for appearances? The natural home of appearances are visual images. So what Whitman seems to be doing here, in other words, is something extraordinary. He's saying that by virtue of the limits of poetic language, this will not be a liability of poetic language. This will be an asset because what it does is to orient us towards the appearance of the world and then to enable us to see that all of the appearances in the world, nothing of which has any, anything in common that we can know about, are all different. By virtue of their difference, they're mysterious, unknowable, attractive, to which we are receptive, and from which we can weave the songs of ourselves. We can imitate to make ourselves different in the image of difference, therefore engage in a kind of democratic becoming. But all of these differences to which we are, to which we are oriented uh, are visual images. There are, in other words, everyone and everything we see about us. So what Whitman has done there is, in addition to um, making teaching reconciliation through the visual image, he has also begun, I think, to, um, uh, to eliminate the distinction between poetry and life. Because poetry, <clears throat> poetry is an image. Uh, it is a visual image for him. And life itself, by virtue of being an appearance that we all see, is itself a visual image. So there is this interesting, what we might call, for lack of a better term, a kind of ontological um, duplication between poetic images as visual images and life itself in its appearances and differences as visual images. So um, here then is the ways in which Whitman helps me to think about film. Um, because what Whitman has done here by breaking down this distinction between poetic images as visual images and appearances and differences that surround us in our ordinary everyday democratic life, and particularly in a democratic life, because what a democracy is supposed to do is to be all-inclusive of visual images. It gives us these infinite ways to create and to recreate ourselves. So in other words, um, in ordinary everyday life, each of us becomes a moving, changing image. And the poetic image um, itself, which is supposed to record uh, these um, moving, changing images of real-life appearances and differences in poetic images, poetic images, too, become 
moving images. So what Whitman has done is to create a poetry of moving images and by so doing to anticipate film. And and I also think that that film itself when we when we watch it and when and this is you know you talk about this as the the images not just the narrative the the projection of the ideas in front of our eyes and and how we consume that um and and thinking about <clears throat> that we give we give an award for scriptwriters but we give a whole bunch of different awards in the academy awards for costumes um for cinematography um, for editing, um, there are far more awards that are given in that regard uh, for the image that is projected than necessarily the narrative. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is just so, so important. And I must tell you that I struggled for, uh, for quite a while with this dimension of my book because um, it was clear to me that I could not simply um, I could not simply um, uh, uh, privilege the pedagogical work for a democratic enlightenment that visual images were doing um, because film itself, of course, um, was initially built on narratives. And people go to films to see narratives, to see stories. And so what I eventually did was to make an argument of the sort that um, in the first instance, the most important thing in film is the narrative structure of film, the storyline. But what's most fascinating about narrative is that it gives birth to an image. The image is indebted to the narrative, but yet the, the image itself might project alternative narratives, alternative stories. In, in the case of my book, in the case of my argument, it might project, for example, the story of reconciliation, um, uh, the narrative of reconciliation. So there might be uh, a contradiction then or a conflict or at least a tension between um, between the image and the narrative that gives it birth uh, because so many uh, film narratives, of course, will have nothing to do with reconciliation whatsoever. Um, they may not be interested in reconciliation, may not be interested in democracy, may not be interested in any of the sorts of things that I've just addressed, but yet the image um, uh, given birth to by the narrative, but then lifted out of the context of the narrative can tell a story of its own. Uh, and that was a very exciting moment to me. And um, uh, clearly from what you're saying, isn't it interesting that um, uh, despite the um, uh, despite the fundamental importance of film narrative, that we have all of these important people in film um, who uh, who are doing work to um, to make the image the center uh, of the film experience. And indeed, when we when we leave a film, of course, we we may we remember the story, the narrative of the film. But long after we've forgotten the narrative of a film, what sticks with us? What sticks with us is often the film image itself, those which are unforgettable. Uh, that is certainly my experience. I suspect it's probably your experience too, given what you've just said. 
Yeah. And, and even thinking about, you know, the roles of the actors and actresses that, that when they are considered to be an amazing, um, you know, embodiment, it is, it is not just that they are articulating lines in the narrative. It is how they are sort of projecting a image that we then consume um, from them um, and our understanding of their vulnerability or their power um, in embodying a role, um, which is, is, as you say, it's, it is both the narrative, but the, the, the strength of it is often the projection of that image itself. And, and the way we consume it and consider it. That, that's, that's, that's precisely the point. And, and, you know, the, the two films that I treated in the book, um, The Help and Gentleman's Agreement, are just packed with precisely these sorts of images. Um, some of which, when you, we begin to see it, uh, from the standpoint of the perspective of, the, of reconciliation, uh, it, it even um, helped me to, much more deeply appreciate the 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 um, uh, the 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 abilities, the talents of these actors to make these images uh, just um, come alive and to convey uh, much more so than uh, was simply intended to be conveyed by the narrative, which, um, uh, quite frankly, in comparison to the image sometimes seems to be impoverished that the image is doing is doing the real work uh, has the real power in in in, uh, in 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 the film and this by the way I think um, not only with Whitman and but Adorno helped helped me to understand this too um, and I would just quickly finish up with Adorno the line of argument that I was making with Whitman Adorno of course can Adorno um, limits the reconciliation image, uh, which he thinks about, uh, I think it really is the center of his of, of all of his work throughout his life. He limits the reconciliation image to the modern artwork, um, and um, uh, while this initially seemed to me to be problematic, what I decided to do was to uh, look at modern artworks of the sort that. Um, uh, he alluded to uh, uh, in his great work, Aesthetic Theory, and to try to flush out the ideal of reconciliation. Um, and what I discovered there was that he, like Whitman, not only included an inclus- all-inclusive image, a receptivity image, and an imitative image, but Whitman, uh, excuse me, Adorno to that added an identity image and a difference image. And what I found to be most interesting in his treatments of the modern artwork is that all of these images in, in modern artworks, particularly in modern paintings, which of course we look at and they're just still images. Nevertheless, these images, if we look at the modern artwork and the way in which he teaches us and recommends we look at the modern artwork, these images are in motion. And this made me, made me recall this very important though, um, really unattended to line in in the uh, earlier chapters of Whitman's uh, book, Aesthetic Theory, where he says that um, in the modern artwork, what's most important, or one of the things that's most important, are its laws of motion. And suddenly I realized that what 
what Adorno is saying is something that very much like Whitman is saying, um, is that um, the modern artwork uh, is filled with images, but these images are moving images. And um, in Adorno's case, he is saying to me, and I made this argument uh, uh, in, in my book, uh, it seems to be getting some, some controversial attention. I'm saying that there are no still images. All paintings, if they're looked at properly, or sculptures, all visual works of art, if you look at them, they are in motion. And I make the statement at some point that what Adorno is saying is that artworks are, in fact, films or movies, and they anticipate for films or movies. Now, why this becomes important in the context of Adorno's studies is that he was he was just um, uh, 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 such a powerful critic of film and didn't feel as though film um, had any uh, kind of um, poli- uh, any kind of pedagogical significance um, uh, but rather it was an uh, uh, film was an utterly conservative force and that uh, that, and that film uh, actually, um, for a variety of reasons, um, which I, unfortunately I can't go into now, for a variety of reasons, uh, the whole disposition or orientation of film was against difference. That is to say, film, as much as the modern artwork, was an image uh, modeling reconciliation, film did precisely the opposite is that it was opposed, it was inimical to reconciliation. So what I've done here is to try to read Adorno against himself. Despite his critiques of film, what he says about the modern artwork is that the modern artwork is not only a model of reconciliation, but it is a model of reconciliation whereby the image models reconciliation by coming to life and by moving. And in that way, the modern artwork anticipates uh, uh, our experience with film. And and so my question for you is is to take the to take Adorno's your interpretation of Adorno's understanding of the visual image as in motion and um and the poet poetic discussion um that Whitman provides for us and explain at least just briefly um how <clears throat> these two films the help and gentleman's agreement um, are read through those particular frames and interpreta- interpretive capacities. Yes, uh, I'd love to. Uh, let, let me be, let me begin with the help. Um, now, um, one of the things I do when I talk about the help is that I um, uh, uh, spend some time discussing an excellent book by uh, a scholar by the name of Matthew Huey, um, whose book is entitled, I believe, um, um, uh, The White Savior Film. And uh, in it, uh, Huey does um, what I think to be a brilliant critique of um, uh, a certain genre of films uh, where where, um, Blacks are... Uh, troubled, discriminated against, oppressed in certain ways, but yet there is uh, uh, a savior in this film, a character in this film, uh, always a white character uh, who um, sort of steps in to save the day and um, 
uh, to lead them to freedom or to a better life or whatever. And certainly, uh, Huey is correct that uh, the film The Help can be uh, looked at in precisely this way, because the um, uh, the the key white character is um, a young woman uh, uh, just graduated from college who is an aspiring author and journalist and played by Emma Stone, played brilliantly by Emma Stone, I might add. And uh, the idea is uh, in uh, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, during uh, the, the, the late 1950s or 1960s, during the period of civil rights, that um, Emma Stone, uh, playing this char- character Skeeter Phelan, wants to um, uh, write a book um, uh, or a series of articles which uh, tell the stories of Black maids uh, living in Jackson, Mississippi, who are the Black maids working for um, affluent uh, white couples or white families uh, within Jackson, Mississippi uh, at this time. Now, what I argue is um, I take uh, Adorno's um, construction of the reconciliation image with its five images, the identity, difference, um, all-inclusive, receptivity, and imitative image, which I refer to as the second evolutionary form of the reconciliation image, the first evolutionary form of which was Whitman's. And I say, let's look for the more, the more developed image um, uh, in this film. And I do find this image um, uh, in, uh, uh, in the help. But um, uh, l- let me uh, offer you, if I may, uh, a- an abbreviated um, uh, description of, of this. I-, I can't go through each one of the images, but, but let me give you uh, let me give you two examples um, uh, of the uh, of the receptivity image and the imitative image. There is a moment in the help when um, Emma Stone, Skeeter Phelan, is uh, interviewing at her home um, uh, uh, one of the uh, the the, the, main, the main characters, uh, Abby, played by Viola Davis. Uh, who is in fact the black maid, and they have met together in Abe's home against in violation of Jim Crow laws. So the penalties for this would have been catastrophic uh, for for both of them, but particularly for Abe. And um, uh, 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 Skeeter Phelan has gone to uh, Abe's home uh, because Abe has finally agreed to um, to tell her about her experience as a black maid uh, working for uh, various uh, 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 white families uh, over, over the years. Now, there occurs in this discussion between uh, Skeeter Phelan and Abe, um, there occurs within this discussion uh, an extremely subtle uh, event. And um, Abe explains to Skeeter that uh, she will uh, tell her uh, um, uh, stories uh, about her experiences, but she's going to tell them in her own way, very much like she uh, writes down her prayers at night. So this is a very moving scene. And um, she is she proceeds to tell uh, Skeeter Phelan about the first white child 
that she had ever taken care of when she first became a black maid. And she is telling Skeeter about how much she loved this child. And at one point she says, uh, the child asked her why she is black. And um, A.B., uh, with a smile on her face, um, says uh, uh, to this young child, you know, it was it was kind of a, uh, a hopeless uh, a predicament to explain to such a small child why she is black. And so this is what she's thinking. So she says to the child, um, uh, the reason I'm black is because I drink too much coffee. And um, there is, uh, and then she starts laughing and there is a hesitation on Skeeter Phelan's part um, where she's not quite certain what to do. And then suddenly she bursts into laughter. Now, I think this is the most subtle, um, uh, uh, one of the most subtle expressions of the reconciliation of the two most Im important images uh, of the reconciliation uh, image uh, in, in the film. Because on the one hand, there is this image of receptivity. Uh, Skeeter Phelan wants something from A.B. Uh, she's intensely interested in A.B.'s life. Uh, she wants to know about A.B.'s experience working for uh, yeah, uh, working for white families and so forth. And uh, so, so, so here is this this need to know to have a knowledge that only A.B. can provide. And then there is the moment of imitation, a kind of mimetic moment where there is A.B.'s laughter, and then suddenly. Um, this within this moment of hesitation, Skeeter seems to be able to put it all together, to see the absurdity of the situation, of the predicament in which uh, A.B. was uh, implicated. And, um, and she starts laughing along with, uh, with A.B. Yes, uh, of course, um, uh, it, 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 this, this is something that we can only laugh at because it's a hopeless situation. Um, A.B. realized, and I think Skeeter realized at that point, um, that A.B. had no hope of explaining not only to this child why she is black, but to any white person what it means to be black. Um, uh, that was her predicament, her bind. And it was an absurd predicament that she would remain utterly anonymous throughout her life to these people for whom she worked within a white culture that was dominant and that oppressed uh, all of these black maids and, and all other blacks in the community. And Skeeter Phelan finally understood this. It was an act of imitation, an act of learning, in other words. Uh, that, that's, uh, 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 that's what she represented to herself. So this was a moment of reconciliation. Now, there is another uh, image of reconciliation in this film just a short while later. And um, Octavia, Octavia Spencer plays uh, this maid. Um, I believe her name was Minnie Jackson. And she's working for um, a, a white family. Uh, uh, Jessica Chastain uh, plays, I think, a woman, uh, uh, Celia Foote and, um, and her husband. I, the the um, uh, uh, the particular details of uh, of um, of this relationship are are, uh, are are too complicated to to convey in uh, in this short time. But let me just say that they become friendly, and um, 
Minnie Jackson um, helps her out in terribly important ways in dealing, for example, with her um, her miscarriages that she that that uh, Jessica Chastain has kept secret from her husband because she's afraid of it um, uh, uh, of it uh, perhaps um, affecting uh, their marriage and. Um, and Jessica Chastain is also interested in learning the culinary arts. Uh, she wants to learn how to cook, which she can't do. And Octavia Spencer, Minnie Jackson, is going to teach her how to do this. And so there is there again, once the else, the, the visual um, uh, image of receptivity, where this white woman, Celia Foote, uh, is terribly attracted to uh, uh uh, terribly receptive uh, to uh, uh, to to Minnie Jackson because all the knowledge that Minnie is um, uh, is depicting visually, what I call her plenty potentiality, um, upon which um, not only black families but white families were completely dependent within the Jackson Mississippi uh, um, uh, context at this particular time, and after all this happens, after she teaches. Jessica Chastain, show your foot how to cook. At the very, uh, near the very end of the film, there is this remarkable scene where uh, Jessica Chastain and her husband invite Minnie Jackson into the house, into their dining room. <laughs> Minnie Jackson uh, thinks that she's going to get fired when in fact they ask her to be seated and then they proceed to serve her all of these dishes that Minnie Jackson has taught Jessica Chastain how to make. So there is this moment of imitation where uh, Celia Foote imitates Minnie Jackson and um, but learns much more than just how to cook and, and, uh, uh, and how to be more domestically competent. Uh, learns about the plenty potentiality of, of 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 the of the black of black being of black experience of, of of the existential condition of blacks. It is a dramatic moment of imitation, which I think is also um, uh, sort of the consummate image in uh, in in the um, uh, in the image of reconciliation that takes place here. Uh, now, so those are two instances of reconciliation, which occurs within this film. Uh, one, as I said, the, uh, the, um, uh, the experience between A.B. and Skeeter Phelan. And then the second one, the, the, uh, the, the experience between uh, Minnie Jackson and, and, um, uh, and Celia Foote. Now, those are instances of reconciliation. But what the film also does is something really incredible at the very end. Um, this, um, uh, uh, this literary project that, uh, Skeeter Phelan had asked all these maids to participate in by telling her the stories of their experiences working for white maids, uh, eventually gets her into trouble at the end of the film. And, uh, the white woman for whom she's working fires her and, um, uh, th there was another white woman there who's. Uh, really a sort of demonic character in the film, which I can't go into now. But um, A.B. Um, is fired, uh, leaves the home uh, that she was helping uh, to take care of the family and the little girl and so forth. Uh, 
And then she's walking up this street and there's a voiceover. There's a voiceover where um, uh, Abby is reflecting on her life and, and she's saying that, well, perhaps now she's a writer. Uh, and she's not quite sure what she's going to write as a writer, but she's moving up the street and she's moving out of frame. So the argument that I make in the book is that what is happening there is that A.B. now represents a difference, albeit perhaps possible further differences, the proliferation of differences, which are as yet unreconciled with um, this white identity that achieves various instances of reconciliation within, uh, within, uh, w- within the film The Help. So we have, on the one hand, both instances of reconciliation, but yet testimony to the fact that there's, there's, there's reconciliation is, is yet um, uh, something to occur in the future, will continue to occur. Uh, there will never be... Um, a complete reconciliation where there is no differences to be reconciled with identities. So once again, we have these dual temporalities with the reconciliation image in the film, The Help, where there is reconciliation on the one hand, which is achieved. It's a time arrived, but yet at the same time, reconciliation is not achieved yet. There's more reconciliation to come. It's uh, it's a time to come, in other words. And you you started out this um, discussing the book with me, talking about how you understood more about it after you finished writing it, <laughs> as you started to take up your next project. So I wanted to ask you this one final question as to what is that next project and how it clarified for you this past project. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here goes. It's, uh, it's, it's early. Um, I think that in this late period of the modern world, that the very nature of identity is undergoing a transformation. The next project will be entitled Beyond Identity from the One to the Many. And it will argue, <clears throat> pardon me, it will argue that what each of our individual identities are becoming, and in addition, what each of our collective identities are becoming, whether that identity is a neighborhood or a community or a culture or a nation or, or and, and even a global identity, it is becoming a community of differences whereby identity is is beginning to lose its center of gravity. This is a movement even beyond Foucault, I think. It's no longer a question simply of overcoming the the morality of of identity, the so-called truthfulness of identity, in order to be able to, to recognize the contingency and the multiplicity of other identities. But what I'm trying to argue is that there is a decentering of identity that is occurring. And that each of our identities are now go- in the process of being reconstituted as a multiplicity of voices, ultimately, none of which will have a dominance over the others in the ways in which our identities now have a dominant over competing voices um, 
within each of our cells, within each of our psyches, uh, or within our groups or our nations or countries or cultures or whatever. And it's precisely this community of differences that I'm that, that I'm beginning to think about uh, in serious ways. And uh, 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 if I get there, <laughs> it will move us beyond identity as we currently know it. Well, I, I look forward to having you come on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about the next project. Lily, thank you so much. I'm really uh, very grateful to you for having this opportunity. It's been a really enlightening discussion to talk about a democratic enlightenment, um, the reconciliation image, aesthetic education, possible politics with Mort Schoolman. This book was published by Duke University Press in 2020, and I believe it can be acquired at the Duke University Press website. Um, is there any brick and mortar store with an online portal that you'd like to give a shout out to Mort? Uh, gosh. Um, yes. Um, um, the, the, um, uh, the, the local bookstore here in Albany, there's, there's several of them. Um, uh, I think they're aware of my book. I tried to make them aware of it. And, uh, um, uh, of course, during COVID, it's it's rather difficult to uh, to invite uh, customers in and so forth to uh, to spend a good time um, viewing their collections. But um, my understanding is my books have done pretty well here, so I'm very grateful for that. Great. So, if anybody needs a copy of this, certainly we can you can get a hold of it at the Duke University Press website or wherever you buy your books. Thank you so much for joining me today, Morton. Thank you, Lloyd. Greatly appreciate it. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.